Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Believe Knicks podcast with Matthew Miranda and Stacey Patton. As always, we are joining you first week of June. Um, everything pretty quiet in Nick Nation. Uh, Celtics lead the Warriors 1-0 in the finals. The draft is coming up in about one, two and a half weeks, I think. Um, maybe three and a half weeks. But um, got a lot to talk about today. Kind of in a narrative sense. Every week, Stacey and I talk to you about the Knicks and basketball. You may find yourself thinking, like, how are these people always talking to you the Knicks for? Like, I don't even know their history with the Knicks. So today, you will find out our history with the Knicks, um, how we got into it, high points, low points, what kept us going through all the hard years, etc. But before all that begins, an opportunity to remind you that our partners at Bet Online continue to be the Number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all of the latest odds, news, and sports development, including this year's NBA Finals, the NHL Conference Finals, Major League Baseball, the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. If you have been betting on the New York Rangers like you should, you have been cleaning up. Um, So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, just use our promo code Believe, that's B L E A V, to get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online where the game starts. Stacey, are you a hockey fan? And if so, are you a New York Rangers fan? And if so, are you enjoying what's going on? Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, I am not a huge hockey fan. Um, so my kind of backstory on hockey is I didn't watch it at all growing up. I was hoops, football, and early in my life, baseball. But once I stopped playing, I didn't get as much into it. Mm-hmm. But like I, I would root for the Rangers just because my friends would, and I would watch like the playoffs when they did. Yeah. Um, but I went to I went to school in Michigan. I went to college in Michigan, and if you have followed Detroit sports teams. Like most of them have had one trend, and then one has had a very different trend. That's true. That's their that's, hockey team. That's very the true. Red Wings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I'm a bigger basketball fan, I didn't meet a whole lot of Pistons and Lions diehards because they just <laughs> have sucked forever. Um, but I, I, everyone watched the Red Wings all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when I, and then like I was like, yeah, I'm not going to become a Red Wings fan. And you know, the I mean, the Rangers had Lundqvist. I started to get into it more then. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, like Lundquist, you know, I've watched him quite a bit. I watched, you know, I, I watched when they got Gabrick. I think my like very, you know, when, when you get into something new, you're kind of, you go back to what you know. So I was like, I was in my head compared the Marion Gabrick trade to Carmelo Anthony, ah, um, nice. especially since he was mostly a scorer. Mm-hmm. And I think he, the both were also the third overall pick in the draft. So there's some similarity. Hmm, yes. Um, but, um, but so I'm, I'm following this time. Um, I have friends that know way more than me. Like the one time I've been to a Rangers game, I was like on the ice and I watched pretty closely. And every time a goal was, they won three zero against Carolina. Mm -hmm. Every time a goal was scored, I was like eating or like leaning (laughs) over to talk to someone. I just missed those. So, um, 
hockey's just <laughs> me and hockey. I, I I love hockey. I'll watch it if the Rangers win. I'm gonna go to the parade. But right, um, you know the the kind of relationship I have with basketball or football or, or tennis, um, I don't exactly have with hockey. So the Rangers are the first team I ever rooted for in any sports. I think because wow. the names really intrigued me. Um, like hockey had name, you know, John Van Beesbrook and Miko Makala and Kelly Kissio were just not names that you and Ty Domi, you didn't hear those names in any other sport. And uh, about 10 years ago, I was, um, I was living in the Hamptons and my girlfriend at the time, uh, her mother had been Charles Wong's first employer, like ever. And they were like friends for life and everything. So Charles Wong was the owner of the Islanders. So he invited um, my friend's mother was coming into town. And since she was coming to town, he invited her and us to go to the Coliseum and sit in the owner's box and watch the game. And I was such a like sports nerd that when my girlfriend came to me and was like, Hey, like we've been invited to sit in the owner's box at, at the Coliseum for, for the Islanders game. Do you want to go? Like my, I literally was like, well, who are they playing? Like, I don't want to go see the Panthers. <laughs> First of all, she's like, you're a jackass, but it was the Rangers. So I was like, oh, awesome. Like, that's definitely go. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how, to, how should I dress? Like, how should I, you know, what's the dress code here? And her mother said, like, you know, just be comfortable. Just, like, be yourself. So this is shortly after it was announced that the Islanders were going to move to Brooklyn. So I had a Brooklyn Dodgers sweatshirt. And I thought it would be kind of supportive and cool if I wore my my Brooklyn Dodgers sweatshirt. Um, and I wore my... Um, Oh, God, what hat was it? Oh, I had a red Montreal Expos hat. So I'm wearing an Expos hat and my Dodgers hoodie. We get there. You know, you go through all these Byzantine tunnels and roads behind. You finally get up to the box. It's awesome. There's, like, good food there and, like, plenty of free alcohol. Um, Very interesting demographic of people who are in the owner's box. Um and Charles Wong was flying in that day from China. So the Islanders got off to a one lead very, very quickly. The Rangers did not score forever. Charles Wong shows up at the end of the second period. And when I met him, it was kind of like not the most warm response. And I, at first I just chalked it up to like, well, he knows everyone else here and he doesn't know me. So like, whatever. But I found out later, like my girlfriend was steaming because she thought, so I didn't know this, but all of my clothes were like the colors of the Rangers, even though they weren't Ranger clothes. So she thought I had done it to be like clever and try to show up Charles Wong. And then the Rangers scored with about 20 seconds left in regulation. And Charles Wong is sitting literally like two feet next to me. And I have to restrain like every reaction I have to cheer the Rangers tying it. And then about a minute into overtime, the Rangers win it and... It was a wonderful experience for me, not so much for Charles Wong. Um, <laughs> and I find the Rangers story very interesting as a Nick fan this year because, you know, I might be very wrong about this and have to eat a lot of crow, but um, if you follow the Rangers, you know that, that Dolan recently, James Dolan, who owns both teams, um, made this controversial decision to fire uh, John Davidson and Jeff Gorton, who were the brain trust in charge of the Ranger organization. John Davidson is basically the Rangers' Walt Frazier. He was beloved as a goalie and then as maybe more beloved even as a, a play, as an announcer, um, as, a, as an analyst. So Dolan fired the two of them, and, and in a rare instance of Dolan speaking 
he to the public, he said that other owners had the Rangers had been on a rebuild with like very young, skilled players for a while, and it seemed to be going okay. And Dolan said that other owners were coming up to him and being like, "Hey, like you have all this great young talent, like don't you think you know it should be, you know, doing better than it is?" So Dolan, as he does, reacted, and I was terrified at the precedent again. It made me think, like, my God, like if he's, if he's doing it with the the Rangers, he'll obviously do it again with the Knicks. But I have to say, like, since he made that move. And since he brought in Gerard Gallant and Chris Drury to take over the team, um, and they made a lot of trades and moves in the offseason that weren't necessarily popular, but they're up 2-0 in the conference finals, and for whatever reason, the magic touch that eludes Dolan's ownership with the Knicks for about 10, 15 years now has been much better with the Rangers. So if you're a Knicks fan looking for hope that it can get better one day, that's your hope. Like, he's had success with the other franchise, so have to figure he can have success with this one too eventually. Um, or famous or that, last words. It's not known that he can't have success with this. It's what? You cannot, you can, it is possible. I guess that's, that's possible. the other way. To and I'll take it. I'll take that. Because there have been many nights this century where I have not known if it's possible. So I'll take that. So I wanted to talk to Stacy today just a little bit about. Um, how he how he came to be where he is now, which is someone who follows the Knicks closely enough that he can write about them and pot about them and continue to root for them. Um, so I just want to start by getting like, not even maybe the Knicks story unless they were first for you, but in the context of your your youth and your introduction to sports, um, were the Knicks like an immediate um, love? Did you come to them after... You had already liked other teams, other sports. Did you like any players or teams in the NBA before the Knicks? Because when it's my turn, I'm going to tell you the very embarrassing answer that I used to give as a kid when we would play pickup and everybody had to pretend they were someone in the NBA. I am not proud of what my answer was, but it will give you a sense of maybe how young and stupid I was. So, Stacey, um, first of all, how did tell us your how sports enters into your life in the first place. Yeah, I mean, so there. I mean, there's geographic implications. Implications, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually born near Boston, um, and my parents actually. My mom went to BU for graduate school. My dad got a job there, uh, so they moved to Boston in the '80s. Which, if you're a basketball mm-hmm. fan, uh, and and they both came from India, so if you're a basketball fan and you, or you know, they had never watched basketball before. And then they moved to Boston, and I think they had like three channels on their cable on their TV the first time. They turned one on, and it was you know Lakers versus Celtics mm-hmm. in the finals. And you know they were in wow. Boston, so they they adopted that team, mm-hmm. which is ironic that now I'm a Knicks fan. But <laughs> um, my parents are always big Celtics fans. I, I think in terms of basketball players, my dad's favorite player is still probably Larry Bird mm-hmm. or McHale. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, they they kind of became. And then when I was born, like, I mean, my parents have told me that like even when I was an infant, like if they put me in front of the TV and there was a game going on, like I just would get mesmerized, you know, nice. I just like my eyes wouldn't close and all that. <laughs> um, so that's kind of my love for basketball started. How I became a Knicks fan, 
Um, so I actually, I was born in the United States, but I moved back to India for a couple of years. When I came back, we come, we lived in Connecticut and we had moved down a bunch. Um, and the first time I can remember like really paying attention to basketball was the 1995-1996 playoffs. Mm. To the end of that season, the Sonics beat the Bulls. And so I did root for the Knicks that time. Um, you know, some of the players on that team, Derek Harper, obviously Ewing, Starks, mm-hmm. you know, those are those teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they lost in that, those playoffs. Um, and so I can remember watching those playoffs. My first favorite player was Penny Hardaway. That's the first player I can oh, say. Oh, like, nice. That's my favorite player. Nice. Um, I actually, I think I still have this jersey, a, a Penny Hardaway jersey for when I was six years old. My parents got me one. <laughs> and now it would look like a bra, basically. <laughs> but um, but I really, um, Penny Hardaway was the first. I, I, I mean, Shaq was cool, too. Like, I like that Magic team. I was yeah. I was rooting against Chicago and they beat them. Um yes. and then in the finals I was rooting for the Sun. Like I liked and even I don't know how much of this was conscious, but I loved those both the Magic and the Sonics were kind of fast-paced teams, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um shot more three-pointers. Um you know, Shaq is massive, but if you watch Orlando Shaq, um he is like he was just a much faster version of Joel Embiid. Yeah, That's, I think he was almost. Player. He was basically almost at that point. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I still think if you, I would take the peak, like the best version of Shaquille O'Neal over Michael Jordan. By the way, like, as far as dominance, he's the only player I've ever seen that there was literally zero. You can't game plan for him. <laughs> Yeah, you can foul him even, but you that's still him. not a great payoff, right? Even if he shoots fifty six percent, that's that's but, a pretty. But he would, I mean, people talk in retrospect about like, well, you could just foul him, but what they miss in that was that it put your team in the penalty right away. Yeah. Teams would foul out their entire centers. Like Chicago used to use eighteen foul. It was always Will Purdue, Stacy King, and Luke Longley. Luke Longley, and they would use all eighteen on Shaq. Um, and in big games, Shaq. I think if he's 50% for his career in big games, he was like 60. He was good enough in big games that like a lot of times he would, he would hit just enough to hurt you. Yeah. Um, But anyway, how I became a Knicks fan. So I, you know, out of all this, I really started as an NBA fan. What made me like a Knicks diehard guy. I'll always remember this. Um, I had a really close friend. Um, so I, I lived in India for a few years and then we moved back to the States and I was seven. I was the only person, my ethnicity at my school. And I had a friend, um, he was African-American um, and we were on the same baseball team. We used to hang out a lot. And his dad was like six foot three or six foot four, super intimidating guy. He was like, he was a lawyer at GE, like, but super high up. Like they had, they were like super wealthy. His dad always intimidated me. And like, I was always like, kind of scared not intimidated but like i was kind of you know the way you are of like older or parents whenever i'd go to his house Mm -hmm. and then we watched game uh, you know we watched the larry johnson game uh against indiana Mm -hmm. and we was just it was just us and like a big barbecue that they had and they had it was like a family party yeah i was the only person that looked like me there and i was a little uncomfortable (laughs) and um and then we watched that game and Reggie Miller, you know, it's it's back and forth. Um, and Larry Johnson hits that shot. And, like, 
this is like again like my friend's dad was like very stoic guy very like no nonsense and larry johnson gets the four point play and he's like five years old again he's <laughs> up and cool. down he's hugging everyone he's screaming um and and everyone was like everyone was going nuts yeah, yeah, yeah. and i would say like i i was rooting for the knicks you know they were the local team and all that but that moment just being around when larry johnson hit that got the four point play mm-hmm. made the free throw um like that experience is what turned me into like you know kind of a diehard so okay and are you that are you are you diehard with your teams and that would explain how like was there ever a point because if you started in 96 then your first like five years or so the Knicks are, are like a legitimate team and yeah, then when the swoon <laughs> you know when the swoon hits is there ever a point where like there's some teams I don't really follow football anymore but when I did you know I cared a, if the Giants were four and ten I didn't really give a shit I wasn't gonna, I had too much I, I there's only so much time you can follow so many teams was there ever a point where you were like turned off by the Knicks or they went off your radar um, during the bad times? Or were you just like, you're one of those sickos who just, you're totally into it. Yeah. I would say um, when I was four, when I was like 16, 17 was kind of the, the low point of the Isaiah era. Yeah. Uh, and I was applying to college, um, you know, all of those things that happened around that age. So that's probably when I pulled back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be honest, I probably was, you know, I, I still follow them from here to here and there. I started following them a little bit more when they hired D'Antoni. So I was pretty excited about that. Yeah. And it always liked the Suns. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I got um, the year before they signed Amari was like, it's also like I was more adjusted to college. That's when I started to get back into it. And then, um, since they signed Amari that off season, they traded David Lee. Yep. That's probably when I've been like nonstop, okay. you know, back to, you know, all in. So how pumped were you about Amari? Were you like, cause there had been like all the LeBron talk and, you know, maybe LeBron and Bosch and they come away with Stoudemire. Were you like excited or were you more on the, like, I remember being terrified that summer that they were going to end up maxing out like Joe Johnson and Carlos Boozer. Um, I was thrilled with Stack because I loved him on the Suns. Were you like totally gung ho, or were you like not? I was totally gung ho. I mean, I was still I was twenty years old, twenty one, so I was young enough. Like, if we signed Stoudemire today, I would be like, we didn't insure his knees and all that, right? right. Um, <laughs> I probably enjoyed being a fan more back then. Yeah, if I'm honest. You probably enjoy a lot of more things right, when right. you're younger, but um, you know, uh, I was I was thrilled. I, I I really love that team. Um, that was the first like I I was in love with those Knicks teams from the nineties. I mean, I can rattle like my those heroes that I had right, Latrell Sprewell, Houston. I I mean I was old enough to know when Latrell Sprewell came here. Like I understood his redemption story. Right, he had a falling mm-hmm. out with Carlo, Carlesimo, but he he gave it all he had. Um, we were sad to lose Starks, but Sprewell really. I mean, I think John Latrell Sprewell is better than John Starks. Yeah, he was instantly, um, pretty instantly, like a huge yeah. favorite. He's, he's one of the most talented players I've seen for the Knicks in yeah. my lifetime. Like we talk about J.R. Smith, like Latrell Sprewell was everything we'd ever hoped J.R. Smith would be, and more. Yep. Plus, um, he was smaller than Houston, but he played up a spot at the three, 
um, and was a much better assist man. He was a freak. I mean, we haven't the, the Knicks haven't had a lot of freak athletes. Yeah, exactly. Spreewell was one. He is. You know? He's up Camby there. was another. Camby and Spreewell but, um, right up there. Um, like especially the wings. Like that's part of why I'm. I really just want us to take a freak athletic wing. Yeah. Um, but Spreewell is like that's why I loved him, and like that's also why it was such a great compliment to Houston, right? Yep. Um. But in terms of like, yeah, like that, that like after when you know after the '99 Finals team kind of you know split up, I don't think I could remember falling in love with the team until that first. And this is not me saying we shouldn't have made the mellow trade or anything. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. like I remember, I remember I, I watched a lot of Knicks games, and then I watched that game. I don't know if you remember this game where Amari Stoudemire hit the three that didn't count. Yeah, against the Celtics. Yeah, yep. that I remember was like, it very clearly because he was hot. That he was having that like MVP season, and the Knicks were like he was like twenty six and eleven. I think that's what he's averaging. Yeah, and they were winning. Um, and Boston was still, you know, kind of the the, I think the marker for what you were looking for. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember that game very clearly. It was. I mean, they were they were peak big three, and and yeah, he was a half second late. It was at MSG. Um, I was watching the game in Ann Arbor, but. Hmm. I remember, like, yeah, like I had been, I had been hanging out with the same few people for many years, and you know, when we would watch NBA games, they would clown me for being a Knicks fan, right? Mm-hmm. Or like the Knicks were a punchline. We watched that game together, and they, like, at the end of it, they were like, "Damn, like they played really well." Um, like that's not, this is not a title contender, but like that's an interesting team. And I remember, like, that was like, I don't want to say that was the first time I cared in a long time. That was the first time I really felt that, like, you know, when you have high expectations and you believe, right, you believe something good is going to happen and you get crushed. That was the first time I'd really felt that since Ewing. And and then afterwards, you know, mm-hmm. since then, like, we've been, you know, up and down. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you say was your high point as a Knicks fan? High point as a Knicks fan, probably that Larry Johnson shot. Yeah. If I had to pick one specific moment, uh, that finals run would be up there. All of it, right? The Allen Houston shot, obviously. Um, That's incredible. The Larry Johnson shot is so miraculous and revered in people's minds that I feel like it has dwarfed the Allen Houston shot into a lesser station than maybe it deserves. Because that shot literally won a series. It won these. It's an eight-one. As an eight-one, that was a bigger upset. Eight-one against your hated, hated rival. I'm not. I mean, I'm not judging. We did a. We did a. a your ex-coach, test. right? What's that? Your ex-coach. Yep. Right. He's still there. We did a a tournament and posting about a year ago on the most um the most Nixie moment ever. And early in the contest, the the Houston shot went up against the Larry Johnson shot. Larry Johnson shot. How did you, your bracket must have been messed up? So I, I did. How did you let that I didn't want. I specifically did not want um, to. I didn't want the ninety stuff spread out because I felt like a lot of people associate the magnitude of a memory, particularly in sports, with how successful the team was in that period of time. So, for example, like your memory of the Stoudemire game is legitimately as valid a like. A, mom, a moment of drama as like anything that happened in the 94 playoffs. But like when you ask people, you know, Jeremy Lin versus John Starks, it's just a question of taste. It's just a question of like who meant more to you. 
but there are a large number of people who get hung up on like, well, John Starks, you know, played on, he was there obviously much longer, but also he played on winning teams when there was more at stake. Jeremy Lin never did. So like when people would vote for Jeremy Lin, a lot of people in the comments would get pissed and be like, how can you vote? You know, Jeremy Lin doesn't even belong in this contest. So I didn't want like the LJ shot. And the if I spread it out, I already knew at the start of the contest, the final four would be the LJ shot, the Houston shot, the John Starks dunk, and then, you know, wild card or whatever. I didn't want it to all just become 90s. Um, so I, I made some very controversial seeding decisions. A lot of people were pissed. Um, but I, I wanted it to be wacky, and it was. Um, but that, that, that Larry Johnson shot, I would say when I ask people who are about their Nick fanness, that comes up. Particularly, like you're saying, for anyone who was not um, like a, I'm a, I think I'm Gen X, right on the verge of millennial. Um, I was born in '78, so I was, I started watching the team in like 1990, like really seriously. Anyone who came after Riley, I would say, especially, it's it's the Larry Johnson shot for everybody. Yeah, I mean, that was such an incredible play. Um... And I'll I'll just always remember the moment where I was at. You know, yeah. Um, I think if I just watched it at my house, I probably wouldn't have had the same level of impact. But I was at a retirement party for my father, and someone ran out, like literally in the middle of like I think my dad's speech at the end or something. This guy, this guy Armando, we used to play basketball with. Armando came running out and grabbed the mic to let everyone know that because this is pre cell phones and shit that Larry Johnson had just hit the three-pointer and he was going to the line to put the next to And, like, nobody cared, including my father, nobody cared about the retirement thing anymore. Like, then it was straight on to, like, the radio or whoever was on the phone with whoever had a TV. Like, that was it. Um, that's so funny. That's so yeah, funny. That, I think that was, um, of the 90s, that was probably the greatest positive moment. You, get, you have Charles Smith and... Some not positive moments, obviously. So I was about to say, what would what would be your lowest moment as a Nick fan to this point? I actually, I probably wouldn't. Don't don't say it's quickly not getting enough minutes. I want to go <laughs> to the real heart of your your pain here. Uh, the first really bad loss I can remember, um, I think it was during a playoff series. Tim Hardaway hit a desperation three against the Knicks. To- yes. In the game, yeah. Um, he was falling away, it was complete luck, but um, that was the first, but I don't think that was the lowest. Um, I don't know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's been a lot of lows. Yes. Um, I don't know, I've talked about this, but um, the day that the Nets got KD and Kyrie, uh, my grandfather died, and so I was dealing with that, oh, but I was also God. getting texts from all my friends, like, yo. What the fuck, Katie and Kyrie? Oh my god, that's terrible. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not trying to think about that right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But also, that doesn't make me cheer me up. Um, that's probably like the saddest I've been as an NBA fan. Um, I was pretty sad we didn't get LeBron. Yeah, to be honest, like I think most of it has been, most of it has been free agency misses. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say that that Amari game hurt. Um, and then, yeah, like the Hawks series, that hurt. 
Um, it hurt. Like it, I will say, like yeah, if I had to pick moments, there's here's. I'm just. I don't think I can pick one. So I'm gonna give you a few snaps. Yeah, go for it. The one I can remember from that Hawk series is um, the pass that went through. Like that should have been a turnover. The like Trey was. I think it was Trey Young. He kicked it out, but he was really desperate. And RJ was right yep. in position. Yep. It basically just telegraphed through his hands. Mm-hmm. Bogdanovich gets it. Not only gets it, but I mean, has a ridiculous release. Yep. Crazy shot. The three. Um, game changing play. Serious change. Oh, right? yeah. The Knicks are. Um, other, you know, um, I think J.R. Smith's elbow on Jason Terry that suspended him and kind of broke his rhythm from what was. By far, that was an all-star level season from J.R. Smith, in my opinion. Underrated also, that elbow, if the Knicks had swept, they were going to have a while off before they played the Pacers. And Stoudemire yeah. was just coming back, and the re- and, and it ended up... And in Chandler, that- was, Chandler was hurt, too. So. Yeah, and they were banged up, and Stat needed um, like practice time. And because the Boston series got extended, <coughs> Stoudemire couldn't come back until it didn't matter when he came back but he didn't come back until i don't know i feel like later in the series or he just didn't have he didn't have as much time under his belt to reacclimate that elbow was is an underrated bad moment in nick playoff stuff yeah uh it's ironic because also um a couple of years later chair smith was on the Cavs. have you seen this clip by the way which one J.R. Smith, there's a clip where J.R. Smith, uh, you just see the, uh, not the J.R. Smith's on the Cavs, they're playing the Bucks. The Bucks get a wide open free, um, a fast break bucket with Tony Snell. And then, like, no one knows what happens. Like, you can see Kyrie on the replay, he was on the team. Like, what, who, whose man was that? And then you see J.R. Smith was guarding Tony Snell, and then he sees Jason Terry on the bench. The same Jason Terry. Oh, album. yes. And then he goes to Terry tap him up, and Tony Snell's like, "Hey, give me the ball!" And he gets a dunk. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can see that. in real time the, the commentators realize like that's what happened. I do <laughs> they remember start that. Giggling, like, Pro- you know but, what? Props um, to Jr. Smith. When we did that tournament for the most Nixie moment, Jr. Smith had a whole bracket to himself because yeah. there were so <laughs> many Jr. Smith moments. Um, that's incredible. I had forgotten about that. That's incredible. I mean, overall, I will say this: J.R. Smith was like a good player for the Knicks. Very much so. Yeah. Takeaway. Yeah. Uh, like a well above average player for the Knicks in that 2012-2013 season. Yep. He I was... think Tyson Chandler did win Defense Player of the Year that year. I'm still tempted to say J.R. was our second best player on a two seed that won 54 games. So, you know, like he was um, – mm-hmm. I have nothing – I have pretty good feelings for J.R. So. Yeah, I, I did too. Um, I mean, the only time I didn't get where he was coming from was about his brother, but, like, that's family. Like, that's different. Um, I get that. Yeah. So uh, – But I want to ask you kind of the same question. What was your kind of uh, – what is your villain Nick's origin story, so to speak? <laughs> so – um, it started in the the only team I, I watched the Mets um, and the Rangers growing up. That was mostly it, and then, but I would I I read voraciously. I always just read and read and read, and uh, we would get news. You grew up in Long Island, yeah. So I'm on Long Island. We would get Newsday, and I would follow. I I wanted to read the sports because that's where the Mets were, and then just to keep reading about sports, I would read like every article about, other than horse racing. I would read like every article. 
<clears throat> about everything. And um, I liked that the Knicks had a player named King, so I kind of paid attention to them through that. And I really loved um, playing with math in the box scores. Um, like, I just fell into, like, all the different number things that you can do. And so I followed the Knicks through the, through the papers. Then we moved upstate um, to Rochester. And um, if <laughs> Rochester is not... Western New York in general is not pro New York City, Long Island at all. Like they hate it. Um, there's always a movement up here, not major, but there's always talk about secession. Like they do not like New York City and Long Island. And we were the second Puerto Rican family to move into our all white neighborhood. And it was not welcome. Um, literally from day one, um, there was, you know, harassment from neighbors. They, they would, call the police and make up charges about like people I'd never seen would claim that like I came to their house and like threatened them. And I'm literally 10 years old. Um, it was really, really shitty. And so I began to form, you know, kind of a protective identity around where I had come from. Um, and in my head, you know, that became good and Rochester became bad. And so when the Knicks right around that time, when I was, 12 that's when no no when i was 13 that's when riley came and to have riley come and instantly add xavier mcdaniel and anthony mason and john starks and greg anthony to ewing and oakley you had this team and this was a time when still like every team had like a white guy like you had to have a, everybody had a white guy and the knicks were the first team in nba history who didn't i think in 1980 um which they got shit for. And I have to double check. It's not 92 because Kiki Vandeweghe was there, but the Knicks by 93 certainly had become a team where I don't think they had any white players in their rotation. Um, and I took a lot of pride. I was getting into public enemy. I was getting into Chuck D. Um, I was getting into like my own identity. And so initially for me, the Knicks became very attractive. Not only did I just like watching basketball, but Identity-wise, they gave me what I felt like was um, a badge or something to hang on to in a place that I otherwise felt like very... It was very weird moving from a working-class neighborhood that was predominantly Spanish-speaking and Black to an, a, a middle upper-middle-class neighborhood that was 96% white. Like, it was very weird. Um, so then Riley came... You know, the Knicks started really being being competitive finally and being really, really good. Um, that caught all my attention because the Mets at that time sucked. And where we lived, you can't get hockey because we're not. We're, we're considered the Buffalo market. So the Rangers are blacked out. You can't watch Ranger games. You can watch Sabres. You can watch National. So partly by a lack of choice and then also partly by other factors, the Knicks became kind of an outsized um, presence in my sports world and you know Riley was captivating and the whole NBA at that point was just if you were a teenage boy it was glorious I mean it was such a fun time to grow up and, and the dream team and be a fan um, and NBC you know would play three three playoff games all during the daytime like it was really really cool Riley left um, the Don Nelson year was a weird year uh, Vanity comes in I'm very into it in college, I met a bunch of people who were big Nick fans, um, so that kind of kept it alive, and it, it gave us like something to bond over. Um, 
and the low, you know, they dropped off after that, and I'm kind of moved around, but it's always been, other than the very end of 08, when Isaiah was in his final days, and I just, I found everything about the team so unlikable, that I think for about a month, I, at the end, I stopped watching them, but that's literally the only time in 30 whatever years that, like, I I watch pretty much every game um, that I can, and there's just so many good stories. Like you're not, I'm not following this team predominantly because I need a title. Like if, if that's how I felt, I wouldn't be a Nick fan. Um, but there's so much in the community about them. That's so much fun. Uh, Nick fans are so fun and, and, and Nick Twitter and Strickland and posting communities. Like, I think that's helped a lot, um, make it more fun, um, than it would have been even otherwise. I think the, the high point, for me as a Nick fan was when they um, beat the Pacers in 94 to get to the finals because um, they hadn't been there since winning it all in 73. And I had, you know, only ever seen Michael Jordan winning. Um, and I really thought they were going to win that year. Like I was convinced they were going to beat Houston. So um, it just felt, you know, I was, I was 15 and it felt like life. It just felt like, if you were 15 in the mid nineties, like the economy just kept growing and everything was easy and good. That's, that's a gross overstatement, but the economy was much better than it is now. And you're 15, you're getting bigger and stronger and smarter every year. Like you just feel like, or I just felt like this was, this is how the world progresses. This is how life progresses. Like, so when there's no inflation in the economy, you get inflation in your optimism. <laughs> there was a lot, yo, nineties was a great place for inflated optimism. But when that loss came, you know that was like, oh, okay, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't just happen that way. I, I so I, I was still in India when that series happened. Yeah, and I remember watching the OJ chase, but I don't remember much of the, the Knicks. I'm still, I think my dad was watching it, but still, that's one of the saddest things ever. That the closest the Knicks, so the OJ chase night was the night the Knicks won to go up three to two. So. That's the closest the Knicks have been to a championship since 1973, and nobody saw it. Even if you yeah. were looking for it, nobody saw it. And to this, that is really the Knicksiest thing. That, so. I should have put that on the contest. I really resented it because it wasn't even like. I mean, it's like if they made the four seed and won, you know, 42 games, and no one was allowed in the stands that year. That's the same thing, right? So. Sort of, sort of, and it wasn't a high speed chase that has always killed me. If he's going 80, all right, you know, I mean, that's not for everybody, but, like, if you're a rubbernecker, check that out. <laughs> the 25-mile-an-hour chase going on, yeah. so I can't see Patrick Ewing kicking Olajuwon's ass. That's some bullshit. Um, that was the high point. The low points, as you said, um, really do stand out. I would say arguably the, the gut-punchiest moment I've ever had as a sports fan was the Charles Smith game. Made worse by the fact that, like, I was in, I was in 93, 3, 4, 5. I was in ninth grade that year, and I had, you know, a curfew. I had to go to bed at, like, I don't know, 10 or 10.30. So I didn't finish it. I had to tape the game on the VCR, come down at, like, 5 in the morning before school to watch the game. So I'm in Rochester. I'm, it's completely blackout my whole family is asleep i'm downstairs like an idiot 
watching this this tape and it's going along and i i really believe unquestionably in my mind because the knicks had won something like they had won an obscene number of home games in a row chicago couldn't win in new york like it's what everybody counted on which was in retrospect not a good thing and you know it's still frozen i i still remember the pose i was in kneeling in front of the tv like how i froze for like five minutes after the game ended like i just couldn't couldn't process so that was a low point um and then obviously the fight against miami and the suspensions i think is the angriest i have ever been as a nick fan because that felt first of all like such an injustice and such a an in astute use of the letter of the law versus the spirit of it. Like I, I thought it was because that team really had a shot against Chicago. Um, and that, and it, it bothered me because that one fucking incident is the only reason why Knicks heat is considered a rivalry because that's the only time the heat ever got over on the Knicks. Otherwise it is a one-sided ass whooping on the same level as Jordan versus the Knicks. But just because of that one stupid incident, so that one kills me. The worst moment since then, and I don't think a lot of people have this, and I don't know why it hit me so hard, but it did. I wrote about it like immediately for, for an article. When Phil Jackson was fired, like a week after drafting Frank Nelikina, I was like in a bad place mentally. Because I just felt like, you know, you can accept... That's interesting. You can whiff on draft picks. You cannot get LeBron... You cannot predict what happens on the court. You know, you don't know what's going to happen on the court. But um, I couldn't fathom, like, what could Phil Jackson, unless there's something we don't know about behind the scenes, what on earth could have happened that you changed your mind about this person right after the draft? Like, that was hard. I don't know why that one hurt so much, but that one really, like, losing out on Durant, I didn't care about that at all. I never thought they would get LeBron, so I wasn't like disappointed. But that Phil Jackson, he had the. Uh-huh. So part of it is, I will say, um, the LeBron thing was a low point for me because um, I was still I was twenty one at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought the hype. I bought like you know we finally like because most of my life we had had inc- incompetent GMs. We had Donnie Walsh. Right. We had Donnie Walsh and D'Antoni. That was the last time I felt as good about a front office coach combo, to be honest. Like besides now, yeah. Uh, as much yes. as I've criticized Tibbs, like we have a you know pretty good combo. But um, you know, I I thought that um, yeah. I, I mean, and so I grew up in in Connecticut. Uh, I did not grow up in Greenwich. The town I grew up to is next to Greenwich and is not Greenwich. Um, I did not grow up with. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been to Greenwich, Connecticut. That's not how I grew up. He's being but, very clear to you people. He's not from Greenwich. Um, but it was, you know, it was the next, the neighboring town. And um, he held his announcement there. And I was like, well, what's hmm. the closest town to Greenwich? Uh, by the way, another person that's from Greenwich and constantly linked to the Knicks is Donovan Mitchell, right? So, Where's Thibodeau and, from? Uh, He's not from there, too. Thibodeau's, I think, upstate New York, right? I think he's from Connecticut. No, no, you're right. He's New Britain, I think. New Britain or New... So that's not... That's, like, closer to Hartford. Okay, okay. 
so like Greenwich, Stamford. I'm from Stamford. The Greenwich, Stamford, those towns are like, you know, right by the border of New York. Like I can, if I go north, I'm like in the boot, so I can I can run to New York State in about ten minutes. Oh, nice. But um, but New Britain, where he's from, is is for it's like closer to Hartford, so it's like a couple hours from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I missed you said something about like I miss being younger and dumber as a fan like the first playoff i watched really intently was 91 and they had no chicago was was the one seed um the knicks were a sub 500 team whose second leading scorer was kiki vandaway like they were not good at all and i remember they got i i got to invite friends over for game one because this was the first time i had like been ready for a playoff game so like we made all these snacks and like it's a big deal and I honestly believe like anything can happen because I'm a Met fan from the 80s. So I, I believe anything can happen. And the Bulls win by like 41 in game one. And they they beat him again in game two. And then in game three, Maurice Cheeks is the Knicks starting point guard. And Maurice Cheeks probably that year averaged like six points a game. And I think he hits the first three baskets. And the Knicks are up six to two. And Phil Jackson calls a timeout. And I'm so young and stupid and like hopeful that I, I I remember telling my dad like if you know just as long as cheeks keep shooting like they'll be fine. And my dad's like, let, let me explain something to you like about basketball. And they end up of course getting killed. But I started watching soccer in the mid 2000s, and when it first started, I could recognize like to me it looked all just completely random and chaotic and spontaneous. And you re- and you start to realize, you know, this this dawning understanding that like what you're watching in front of you is actually in some ways ordered or or plotted, and and you just don't you don't you're not recognizing the language of it yet. So I miss sometimes being a fan. Like when I watch games with my fiance, the Knicks will be up twenty five with three minutes left, and they give up a three, and she'll she'll immediately be like really anxious and worried, and I'm like it's not. I'm like, they're fine. And she's like, how do you know? And I'm like, because I've watched thousands of games. And, like, you're not going to blow a 25-point lead with three minutes left. But I miss being fresh enough to it that, like, you don't understand what the limitations are at all. Like, where you really believe, you know, if you watch Maurice Cheeks have a good three minutes, you somehow believe he's going to sustain that for 48 against Michael Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, just a double-edged sword to getting... But I mean, the the upside of it is you probably don't have. I would hope as many downward emotional swings. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So we've gone through the past. We've worked up to the present. We're going to look a little bit at the future. Um, I'm going to tap into Stacy's impressive draft prospect brain. And try to learn something about a player that I really don't know anything about. And I'm a bit confused about from some of the little pieces that I know. So one of the players who was mocked usually right ahead of where the Knicks are, but sometimes in their spot at 11, is um, Johnny Davis, who is a, I think, a scoring guard. I think he's 6'4". Um, and a very apparently, like, dynamic score, but not... From deep, um, he shot, I think, 30.6% uh, from three um, this season. He 
I don't think he's reputed to. I think I think he's a okay. If I recall, Johnny Davis is an unusually prolific rebounder. Um, I think he had to average like eight a game somehow. And I don't know anything about his defense. I don't know why I'm still talking about him because I don't know anything about Johnny Davis. So, Stacey, what can you tell us about Johnny Davis? Yeah, I'll start with some of the things you said. So the three-point shooting is a very important place to start. Um, So Johnny Davis was the offensive engine. To give you context, he played for Wisconsin. They had a freshman guard who was a decent prospect, but until really late in the season was barely capable of creating for himself. Um, And then they had a bunch of, of guys, and Johnny Davis was the guy. And he took them in a conference that had, they did have Purdue, which had Jaden Ivey. Um, they did have Illinois, which had um, Kofi Coburn and, and a bunch of other talented players. Michigan was a top 10 team early in the season. Uh, Michigan State, like they won that big 10 against the team. Mm. And, and it, it was Johnny Davis. And if you watch this film, you just understand why. So let's go to three point shooting. If you look at just his catch-and-shoot three-point shooting, he's about 38% as a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, which I think most of us would take. Um, His percentage was dragged down by the fact that he took a lot of pull-ups because he had to, right? He was So pull-up three-pointers are not in his game. Everything else is on offense. Um, He is a very good pull-up mid-range shooter. Um, He gets to the rim better than anyone on the Knicks currently does. Nice. I like Um, that. He, he's a good athlete, um, like not a great athlete, but like there are people who are like his athleticism is ordinary over. And I was like, you know, if, if he had Kentucky in his jersey instead of Wisconsin, I think people would <laughs> be talking differently. Um, he's he gets off like it's it stands out more in his shot blocking, but he's like he's had some impressive dunks um, against Jaden Ivey. He scored 37 and 14. Mm. So he is athletically like ath- athleticism is not going to be his issue at the NBA. Should be able to create space, solid passer, even though he didn't have options. Um, but like what he gives the Knicks is he's legitimately wing sized. You know, he had I think a six six and a half height and six nine and a half oh, wingspan. He's a little bigger than I thought. I thought he was like six four. No, he's yeah. So like Critton Grimes was six four, and I I thought he would be like Quentin Grimes. He's like he's bigger than Quentin. Okay, Grimes. okay. And what's his wingspan? Um, Sorry, his wingspan is like six nine and a half. Okay, so very good. Um, he's like probably a little bit smaller than RJ, but I think like he is like RJ, where he's a big two guard or like a fine three guard. I think he can actually play the three. Mm. Um, but what he gives the Knicks really, which is not you know, I think the Knicks still need that like freakish six nine seven foot wingspan guy. Yeah, yeah. But what he does give the Knicks that they also need is a three level score. Um. And so you just asked, like, is it three levels? Is it three? And I, I'm willing to say that I think I have much more confidence in betting on him. Like he, he is great at the rim right now. He has a very good mid range game. I'm more comfortable betting on him developing a three point shot, given that he's a good catch and shoot player. He's a good free throw shooter, um, and just had to take a lot of tough shots. Then I am. I mean, like, yeah, like quickly improved at the rim, but. Like that's a tough improvement to make, and RJ improved in mid range, but that's a bigger improvement to make, right? Like Johnny is closer to being a three level scorer than anyone on our roster right now. We need that, and he and on top of that's without I never even talked about the fact that 
he might he's probably the best defender of this draft. Like Chet Holmgren probably really Johnny Davis because of schools. I mean, watch him play. Yeah. Um, like he like Tibbs is like if there's a Tibbs there, I, you cannot tell me there's another Tibbs guy in this draft more than Johnny Davis. Like hmm. he is like um, it's both talent and effort, right? His motor doesn't quit, but also like if you look at his ability to get through screens and his like ankle flexibility and the angles he's able to take to close out. And so many times guys think they have him beat and he just comes out of nowhere to block. Um, and, and combine that with his, with his tenacity and all of that. Um, like he's going to be a plus defender at the NBA and he has three level scoring ability. Like it's just the easy, it's the easy pick and it fits so well. And I think the last thing I'll say is kind of on the note of what I was talking about. He's universally renowned as like a work ethic guy, like 99 percentile work ethic mm-hmm. guy. And the Knicks have targeted those kind of guys, right? Like IQ, RJ, Grimes, OB, Deuce. Like you hear about these guys and they have to be locked out of the gym, right? You have to kick them out. Um, and I think from everything I've heard, Johnny Davis seems to be in that mold. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Davis were available and... Ben Matherin was available. You're taking who? John, Johnny Davis, yeah. 100%. If Davis were available, if the Knicks traded up and Davis and Jaden Ivey are both available. Ivy. Ivy, okay. But that is a closer discussion than I would have thought because Johnny Davis did outplay Jaden Ivey this year. I think Ivy's skill set gives him a higher ceiling. Yeah. But like, I think the fact that you could even think about that shows it says more about Jane, uh, John Johnny Davis than anything like that's how good he is yeah you've been high and you've been on Ivy since like January like you've been all over Ivy yeah. so I mean he's I mean yeah like I I was um, I was hanging out with a buddy last night who's a huge Lakers fan um and has been paying attention to the draft so like he was like showing me some of the top guys and like Ivy was a guy like within three clips he's like oh yeah like I would take him number one mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, he didn't like Paolo Bancaro. Like, that was another story, but I mean, Ivy just pops so much, right? So. Yeah. So he sounds pretty much like you could play him and RJ in any combination. You you know, they can, you can pick based on defensive assignment. He sounds basically, I, when I thought he was smaller, I had wondered, like, well, if you draft that guy, I'm then like you, Davis or Ivy, sir? Davis, sorry. Um, what yeah. I thought, well, if you draft a six four guard, then like you're basically locking RJ in at three, and like then there's a question of like, would you rather have RJ play more time at two or at three, for however much that matters? But knowing that Davis is essentially big, like a that's a that's a good sized wing, um, kind of to me makes this. I feel like he would fit perfectly with RJ, especially with him being as good a defender as you say he is. That that sounds like a what is it about Ivy that leads you to still choose him over Davis? It's the freak out. Like, yeah. So as much as I am a Jade, uh, Johnny Davis athleticism truther, mm-hmm. like Ivy's athleticism gives him a ceiling on offense. Like Johnny Davis can get by dudes at the college level a lot. Ivy blows by everyone. Mm-hmm. Like Ivy doesn't need a screen. Johnny Davis needs of a screen less than someone like IQ, like where he does have a good first step, but Ivy has that outlier first step. Mm. Ivy can, can one hop, two hop into a dunk from anywhere. Uh, Elite finisher Uh, does have a good, Ivy is right now probably a better pull up three point shooter than Davis. 
Um, his percentages were better. Um, and a big difference is Davis is a much better defender and more diligent, but Ivy has the athletic tools to be that good. Mm-hmm. And I don't think his motor is out of question. I just think you know, he played on a team that didn't really emphasize it as much. So, um, like, I think Davis has great upside. I think Ivy has superstar upside. That's kind of the difference to me. <coughs> I love that early on we were talking about Spreewell, and now when you mention, like, guys hop jumping into dunks, that was a nice thing to win. Yeah. <laughs> Spreewell's pretty good at that. Well, I'm good. You got anything else you want to talk about? No, I'm, I'm good, too. That was, uh, that was fun. Yeah, so there's your trip down memory lane. Everybody, um, we got to get somewhere for people to contact us if they want to about this show. Email me if you want to, matthew.miranda.13 at gmail.com. I'll, maybe I'll make a, a Twitter page for us someday. Um, but for now, if you want to chat about the show or anything, hit me up there. Um, that will be it for this week, but we will come back next week with the next episode. Um We'll see if anything goes on. Right, we can get into. I don't. I'm not going to get into this now, and maybe it won't be on anyone's mind in a few days. But I certainly have thoughts on the Rick Brunson hiring. But we can discuss that at some other point. Um, so that's all for today, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. For Stacey Patton and Matthew Miranda. Oh, we are remember we are presented by Bet Online, and we are also presented by me and Stacey. So everyone take care. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.